On today's More Than a Test, we have Carrie Curto. She's the National Science of Reading Project Director at the Reading League. Today, she's going to talk to us about science of reading, her work at the Reading League, her journey to the Reading League, which includes applying for her first teaching job through Craigslist. She's fun and interesting and answering a lot of hard questions about science of reading. Don't miss it. Carrie, thank you so much for being here. We are so excited to have you. Thanks for making time. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. And so, Carrie, you are the director of Science of Reading Projects at the Reading League. Um, For someone who might not know, can you tell us about the Reading League? Tell us what it is and where you all come from. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yes, so I'm the National Science of Reading Project Director, uh, and the Reading League is a national nonprofit organization, and our mission is to advance the awareness and use of evidence-aligned instruction. So what is evidence-aligned instruction? It's essentially instruction that is aligned with the scientific evidence of how students learn to read. It sounds good, right? (laughs) Let's stop right there for a second, because like, obviously everyone's like, why wouldn't we have evidence a lot? Like that makes sense that you would use research around what you're teaching. But uh, this is actually really important right now in literacy. Will you explain to somebody who maybe didn't listen to Solda's story? Like, why is this so important? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's important because sometimes in educator preparation programs, I think everything's getting a lot better now, um, especially with the National Council for Teacher Quality and some of their revised reviews. Um, but historically, educators didn't have access to um, understand how students actually learn to read. Um, the structure of the English language, how to teach that explicitly and systematically, um, it wasn't included. And so now there is kind of a, a, a rush for folks to understand uh, more about that. And so that scientific evidence, the research of how students learn to read, uh, we call that the science of reading. Really, the science of reading refers to that body of knowledge um, that we've lifted from uh, research from uh, across many um uh, you know, from psychology, from cognitive science, from uh, neuroscience. Uh, We're reading that research, we're learning from that research, and we're understanding its implications on instruction. So there's a a national movement now, which is really exciting. It's empowering teachers. It's helping them better understand their students, their direct needs, and how to address those needs instead of just saying, ooh, you know what, I'm not exactly sure how to teach this kiddo. So I'm going to send them to the reading specialist, right? Now educators are understanding more about how to teach reading so that they can see successful literacy outcomes, even in that general tier one classroom. Great. And this research has been around for a while. Like science of reading is kind of a newer term, but this research has been around for a while. I think it's the bringing it to the classroom that asking our our classroom curriculum materials, everything to be aligned to it is what's new. Is that, is that what you, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And can I share this um, defining guide is one of our resources. And in it, we actually have a definition. This was something that I helped with several years ago. And uh, because people were taking the term, the science of reading and just kind of slapping it on a product, sticking it on a box and trying to sell something to, you know, decision makers that say, hey, this is the science of reading. We are checking this box by buying this product. But you'll see in the definition that uh, it's been conducted research that's been conducted over the past five decades across the world, thousands of studies conducted in multiple languages. Great. So, so that's, that's amazing. And I love the guide. Um, the one thing that I feel like people who are not necessarily 
into literacy education might not understand is this is this is a movement, right? This is a this is a big shift for education. So what we found is that there were some gaps in literacy education, and and now we're the science of reading is is looking to fill them. Correct. That's right. Yep. Okay. And the Reading League, what's so interesting about the Reading League is as everyone's been looking to make this shift, I I feel like you in some ways are like the lighthouse or the beacon of light people look to. To your point about your guide, right? Like if if someone is looking at a product or at something, the first place they look for approval is, is the Reading League. So how have you all become like the voice of the science of reading? Well, we try to offer resources uh, that are reliable (laughs) that are truly informed and backed by the research. Um, We are curriculum agnostic. Um, We are, you know, product product agnostic. Um, We really just care about getting knowledge into the hands of educators and school leaders. Uh, And I think that that commitment to reliability and commitment to the research has really helped us uh, become an authentic voice and a leader. Um, I've only been fortunate enough to work with the Reading League for a little over a year, um, but it's incredible that, you know, Maria Murray and Heidi Beverine Curry and uh, a lot of the folks that that founded the Reading League, they were doing this out of Maria's kitchen for years, (laughs) Um, but they would they would gather. experts and they would have conferences and events um, that people really wanted to hear from and learn from because it was the missing piece of what they needed to be able to teach their kiddos how to read. Yeah, I, I think that's totally true. I didn't know that about, I've met Maria Murray. We've had some conversations um, and and she is incredibly passionate, but now that makes sense that she's been doing this out of her kitchen for a while. So that that her, her drive now all of a sudden like is clear to me. <laughs> so when one of the things that you said is people are like products or, or whatever are slapping the word science of reading on things. Um, what what do you think if you're if you're talking to a district administrator, a teacher who wants to follow science of reading, who wants to use the best resources, what should they actually be looking for? Well, I think that the first thing that you need to do is build knowledge. Um, And I'll say that time and time again. I think um, knowledge construction before instruction, I say. (laughs) Um, You have to understand what the science of reading is, what it is not, right? Because there's a lot of misconceptions flying around. People will think that this is a a pendulum swing back to phonics. Uh, They call it a one-size-fits-all approach. They kind of equate it with a scripted curriculum. Um, But it is absolutely not. The science of reading is that vast interdisciplinary body of knowledge. So understanding that you need to learn first um, and then use that knowledge to be critical consumers of your curriculum, to create structures that are sustainable. This is not something that you can, like I said, purchase. It's not something you can do in a week, a month, a year. This takes a very long-term commitment to ensure that um, your system has the knowledge to be able to proceed um, and that educators across tiers of instruction, across grade levels, really are knowledgeable in how kids learn to read, instructional approaches that align, and that is not just for word recognition. We hear a lot about word recognition because of Soul to Story, and we know that there are some wrong approaches to teaching reading that have integrated into our curricula over years, but this is also about building language. It's about building background knowledge. Um, It's about using data and assessments to inform instruction. It's about writing. It's about learning sentence structure and morphology. It's multi-component and it it takes a while, uh, but that 
that journey is worth it because when you talk to schools and districts that have really committed to them, committed themselves long-term to understanding how to shift their practices and their system, the outcomes for the students are just incredible. Okay. Let me ask you two questions about what you just said. So the first thing I feel like I heard you say is a lot of people are kind of slimming the science of reading down to phonics, right? They're saying it's phonics instruction. It's just a pendulum swing. Why has that happened in your opinion, right? Like why, why are people kind of narrowing this very broad, amazing research down to this one thing? Some of it might boil down to implementation, right? You asked uh, what should leaders know? Um, Sometimes, you know, folks might kind of take that easy way and hear, oh, here's this one curriculum that's focused on phonics. We are the science of reading. Check. Um, And then other folks may go into those schools. Like, for example, um, you know, we're doing a lot of work with experts from the English learner and emergent bilingual field, and they will go into schools and they'll see practices like an extended block of phonics and, you know, and leaders might think that that is the science of reading. And so because of that, you know, misunderstood implementation that could lead to this misconception, right? Um, And there is, again, like I said, there's a lot of attention on word recognition because cueing has become so pervasive in ed prep programs, in curricula, in materials, in instruction, in intervention, and it's it, it does not have a scientific basis. And so in order to address that, a lot of attention has to be paid on that component component. Um, However, if you look at the Reading League's curriculum evaluation guidelines, for example, um, that's a really helpful tool that a lot of folks like to use to to determine if their curriculum has red flags. You'll see that there are a lot of red flags related to phoneme awareness, phonics, word recognition, but there's also red flags to look for for language comprehension, writing, reading comprehension, assessment. Great. Um, And then something else that you said, you said it's not just something you could do in a week or in a PD session or a month or a year or curriculum. One of the things that I hear from teachers is I I don't have a year to get better at this. I don't have 10 years to get better at this. Like my kids need it now. I know I've been teaching wrong for the last 15 years and I I don't have the time. What what would you tell those teachers? You got to start somewhere. (laughs) Of course, you have to start somewhere. and that willingness, that willingness, that uh, understanding that Urgency. this is urgent, that you're doing it for your students. Uh, sometimes it takes people five years to get to that point. So I would say congratulations on already being at that point and knowing that um, your journey is beginning. Uh, and of course, as soon as you start to build your knowledge, you start to learn, you know, preliminary things that you can apply right away. Um, and just once I, what, what I found is once folks start to build their knowledge, it's hard to stop. Right. <laughs> so just get started and uh, and your journey will always continue. I feel like I barely have scratched the surface of learning. I feel like I have so much more to learn, um, even though I've been on this journey for quite some time. Well, and we talked to Steve Carnavale, who um, was one of the co-founders of the UCSF Dyslexia Center. And he says the same thing. He's like, we're just getting better and better. He's like, yes, get on the path, but just get excited because we are getting so much better at, at understanding the brain, understanding the way children learn to read. And so like what you're seeing is like just the beginning. So to your point, there's still more to learn. Yep. Um, okay. Let me say, so we talked about how one of the misconceptions is it's just phonics, right? Um, another misconception that we hear, all, well, I don't know if it's a misconception. Maybe you can tell me. Um, we hear this all the time though. Um, uh, Science of reading says children should not have books with pictures. 
boy, do we have three hours um, <laughs> to unpack that one? That's uh, that's that's definitely not true. So um, what Emily talks about in Sold the Story is, um, you know, cueing, which is this wrong idea to teach reading. And so uh, over the past several decades, that's been a really strong approach to teaching reading is to have kiddos use these multiple cues um, to learn to decode the words. Uh, and it looks like they're reading, right? They're kind of doing this like fake reading thing. Um, and however, we have found that there's not scientific evidence to support that you use multiple cues on a page to decode the words, right? Um, I think that, you know, there's also an important part of, of learning to read that's learning print concepts, right? So learning, uh, uh, you know, caregivers, teachers, reading stories to children and beautiful picture stories so that kiddos can get, have access to that language and understand how books work. That's essential. And gosh, there's so many beautifully illustrated stories that my kids loved and still love that I read to them. You know, we go to the library all the time and librarians um, will have story hour and read these beautiful picture books. Of course, we want kids to have access to all of those texts, particularly through oral language at first before they learn how to decode the words themselves. Um, the, the point uh, of the, where we have to pay attention to pictures is when they're actually learning to decode the words themselves, when they are learning that these little squiggles on the page represent sounds and those sounds blend together to create words, um, to learn the alphabetic principle, to, to, to learn phonic decoding. Um, we really want to keep the kids' attention on working their way through the words and decoding the words um, ensuring that we're using a systematic sequence to teach them letters, letter sounds, and then they are practicing decoding using those letters and letter sounds that they have learned. So that's where the role of decodable text comes in. While they're learning to decode, we want to make sure that their eyes are not going up to the pictures because then that creates guessing habits. And I spent many years teaching at a high school for students with learning differences. And I'll tell you, when they first came to me, they were reading through the text and they would read a word and they would, you know, for example, um, the word assassination they would get to and they would read assimilation or something, right? And that's sort of a leftover strategy from let's look at the first letter and take a guess. But it was, they were like fluent in reading these words the wrong way. <laughs> and that's problematic with comprehension. So um, so keep your eyes on the text when you're learning to read the words. The, the pictures can be used, however, you can use cueing after you have accurate accurately read the words to understand the meaning, to verify the meaning. And if you go to Reading Rockets, there's a nice uh, uh, article there that describes the difference between queuing for word reading and queuing to um, to ensure that you have the right meaning of the word. Okay. So you're getting, you're brought up decodable text. I'm going to ask you about this. And I have two questions about decodable text. So the first question I have is I, I was with a kindergarten teacher who was very proud that she had gotten rid of all of her piggy and elephant books because they are not decodable text. I am a deep, deep Mo Willems fan. <laughs> and, and my, and my me heart too. just broke. And, and Gerald. Right. Exactly. Um, and so I'm just, I'm curious, you know, when, when we're saying decodable text, first of all, 
So does everything need to be decodable is the question I'm asking for that kindergarten teacher. And then my second question is, I know you have a list of decodable texts that you recommend on your site. What, what are you using to, to decide those are, the, are, are great versions of decodable texts? Uh, I would have to defer to Maria and the team because that was put together prior to me joining the Reading League. Um, I think that their qualifications, though, are, you know, just to look at it and make sure that it does, in fact, follow a systematic scope and sequence. Um, and, you know, some folks write decodable texts uh, and they may not have a solid understanding of what decodable means. So they may have lots of words with schwas in them. Um, they may, like, for example, I saw one curriculum that had a decodable text in their first decodable text um, had a uh, poppy in it, as in the Spanish word for father. Um, and that might be a little problematic because they're then teaching the kiddos as they're learning to decode that A says ah and I says E. Um, so just making sure that it is truly decodable, I think, is, is a huge criteria to be on the list. It's not that list is not the Reading League recommends these books. It's just a list of uh, actual decodable texts. So we always have to make that clear that we're not promoting a certain publisher over another. Um, the Mo Willems question, you know, like I said, well, I haven't said this yet, but I love this, this expression, choose the text for the task, right? If your task is to teach kids how sounds map to letters, then you need to use, you know, it's it's very, very helpful <laughs> to use words where they are practicing those exact letter sound correspondences that they've learned, right? Much like learning to read music, um, you know, you learn a note, a couple of notes, you're not going to give kids just like a symphony to sit there and play. They're not going to, um, they're not going to be successful and it's going to be frustrating. And the only thing that they're going to be left with is to guess, right? Um, there is certainly a point where, uh, you know, that self-teaching um, hypothesis kicks in, right? After they have been decoding, they know not to look at, at various cues, their eyes are on the text and they're decoding accurately and automatically um, that they'll begin to be able to self-teach and have access to those words, right? My littlest um, is at that point now. And, you know, he's so proud and so successful because he had that solid foundation and, oh, this is how reading works, um, I'm going to look at every piece of information that's in that word and read through that word. And so now it's, it's crazy. It's incredible how he's been able to take off. And now he's reading Ricky Ricotta, you know, Dave Pilkey, um, and he's so proud of himself and it's, it's remarkable. Um, a lot of kids don't get that opportunity though, however, because they, you know, they haven't been taught specifically long enough and with enough practice how the code works they haven't automatized it and so then they are sitting with these these books and and potentially developing these compensatory strategies of guessing that do not help to develop what we want to occur which is called orthographic mapping and sorry to throw out that big word no that's great that's exactly our audience and also throwing out dave Pilkey. Okay, i don't know if you know about him but you know part of the reason he is an illustrator i saw him speak once and writes the books that he does is that he used to get sent in the hall for not reading and he used to draw pictures when he yeah. was out there. It's like this beautiful, well, somewhat sad story of a teacher who didn't like him very much and it left him out in the hallway. And that's why he started writing his own books, which is so incredible. Um, 
Great. So let me ask you one more question. Yeah, and, and I love I wanna... that he includes that, I think, like on the inside flap of all his books so the kids can can read that and be like, oh, that's like me. <laughs> right, that they're not alone. Exactly. Um, okay, so I want to talk, I, I want to ask you a question about what you do. So we've been talking a lot about science of reading in the Reading League, but you're the director of projects. I'm just curious, like what projects are you most excited about that you're working on right now? So at the Reading League, I am... There are some things I can kind of talk about and some things that we're going to be sharing more this summer and fall. Uh, but I do a lot of work with the curriculum evaluation guidelines. Um, we have been curating research um, this past year. We had uh, some help from Dr. Doreen Maisie. Thanks, Doreen. Shout out. Um, and we actually, um, she was able to curate uh, meta-analyses and scientifically based research that substantiates the red flags and aligned practices on the curriculum evaluation guidelines, which I think and hope is going to be really helpful uh, because you can look at those several pages of research and that is the science of reading. That is the scientifically based research that we are learning and lifting these practices up from. Uh, so those correlate with numbers that we then put on the red flags and aligned practices. So you can see specifically that, um, you know, there's an expression that the plural of anecdote is not evidence, right? So these are not anecdotal uh, items that we're listing on the curriculum evaluation guidelines. They are substantiated by high quality research. Uh, and we've been able to put the research on um, and align with, uh, with the the practices. So that's one piece of work. I also am doing um, some continued work with curriculum that will be announced later this summer. Uh, I do a lot of work to support higher ed. I run a community of practice for faculty from uh, educator preparation programs, uh, bring in guests, uh, hear feedback from the field, try to bring them resources and support them. Uh, I also run a similar community of practice with state education agency leaders. Okay, but which is the one that wakes you? What's the one that wakes you up in the morning? What's the one? That, I, I know you can do a ton of things, but like, what's the one that you're like, this is amazing. I love this. This gets me on fire. Gosh, I don't know all of it. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I, we recently had a summit that was really exciting. Um, as I mentioned, I started out, uh, did I mention that I started out as a casting director many moons ago? No, we're going to talk uh, about that in one second, but tell me about this. Yeah. So I've always had a, a passion for kind of bringing folks together. That was probably inspired by, by that work, um, creating an ensemble, if you will. Um, and so when I hear, you know, feedback from the field where folks are, are working against each other, right. Um, I, I try to see the bigger picture and think about how we really all just want kids to learn to read and write well. Um, we have the same goals. And so how can we uh, how can we work together to try to solve those problems? So I've really enjoyed speaking with folks from the English Learner Emergent Bilingual Field. Uh, and it was really exciting to uh, be able to bring folks together uh, at the Reading League Summit this March. We had four panel discussions and we were focused on finding alignments. And that was really exciting to me because it just, you know, bums me out when I see people working against each other so much. Um, and I really think it's more beneficial to work together for the betterment of the field to, you know, to, to take out that confusion that that really impacts our students in the long run. 
Yeah, I think that contention is real. I mean, it's called the reading wars for a reason. So it's nice to see. I, when I was at that summit and I did notice that a lot of this, the conversation was around, like, we have to bring everybody into the fold. Everyone's got to be a part of the conversation. Every teacher matters. Um, and I thought that was really nice. Uh, and and, and someone, as someone who was at that summit, this is a great lead in. Um, what I would say is it's a lot of energy, right? Like people are excited. And when Maria Murray comes off the stage, like everyone wants pictures with her. Um, Marianne Wolf, same thing. They, people are just excited. And they feel, they see someone like you and they're, who started out, you said as a casting director, but you also were a teacher. And now you get to do this incredibly important job with this organization that we all look up to. So let's talk about you. So first you were a casting director. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think education's always been in my blood. My parents were both teachers, but you know, when I, when I was in college and I was like, Oh, do I become an educator or do I pursue this other passion where I could, you know, be a casting director and work in Hollywood? <laughs> I, I decided to go down that path. So um, I did work in LA for about 10 years as a casting assistant, associate and casting director. Uh, but that, you know, that nagging call to education finally got me in my late 20s. <laughs> um, and I, I uh, went to the University of Southern California and I got my master's degree there. Um, it was I learned, I have to say, I learned a lot about, um, well, I learned about sociocultural theory. Um, I started my anti-racism journey there, which was really influential, and I am grateful for that. Um, I did not, however, learn how to teach kids how to read, right? Um, I did get an, an education in balanced literacy, and I pulled a few quotes from the, the text that uh, I used. Um when I was getting my master's and some of the, some of the items that I had underlined were the repetition of predictable text reading develops confidence and fosters non-conventional reading in quotes, pretend reading, right? So I'm learning how to teach kids how to pretend to read. Wow. Um, we might be tempted in guided reading. We use students reading levels. We might be tempted to keep working with the most struggling readers in guided reading groups, feeling that we must teach them, and this is in italics, however, we must provide all children with opportunities to transfer the strategies we've taught into independent practice. Um, there's also quotes about 80% of the guided reading lesson is accomplished through the introduction um, and whole sections on cueing. So, you know, I learned how to teach kids how to pretend read, and I learned not to teach the struggling readers in my setting. So, um, I graduated with all confidence in this degree. Um, I had moved to Austin, Texas uh, right after the recession. I was, I am unfortunately monolingual, um, new teacher, by the way, pregnant at the time. And so I was not getting interviews. Wow. <laughs> so um, I applied for all the jobs I could. And finally was desperate enough to use this kind of sketchy and kind of new service called Craigslist and applied to all the jobs that I was teaching jobs that I was even remotely qualified for on Craigslist and got one interview for a school for students with dyslexia. Okay, but time out. So you have yeah. a degree from the UC, USC in education. You, you have a casting, you have, you have experience in life and maybe not teaching, but a really great experience. You're in Austin, Texas, applying to jobs on Craigslist is how you were That's applying right. to become a teacher. I just talked with someone from Teach Smart where they're trying to fill the teaching gap. I didn't even know you could apply for a job on Craigslist, but here we are and you get one interview at a school for children with dyslexia. Okay, go ahead. Sure. And so I do a big gulp because I, as somebody that 
got my master's in teaching, I had no idea what dyslexia was. So I turned to Google and I started doing research because to me, it's just that thing where kids flip B's and D's. Um, and I, you know, I, I was, I was really struck by how little I knew, um, by some miracle, uh, Laura Steinbach, the head of school at Ross and Saunders offered me the job as a fifth grade teacher. And it was, I mean, it was life changing, absolutely life changing. The kiddos at that school changed my life, um, hearing their stories. And these are kids from wealthy families in Texas that's been legislating for dyslexia since 1985. But I just, I learned so much from those kiddos about the strategies that I had learned and how they did not work for them. And I, it just lit my passion to get this, you know, this golden ticket of information on, well, how do I actually teach kids how to read? So I, I unfortunately had to leave Texas, um, but fortunately moved to Rhode Island. I love Rhode Island. Uh, and I met the best teacher of my life at the age of 30. Uh, her name was Linda Atamian, is Linda Atamian. <laughs> and she uh, is an Orton Gillingham accredited fellow. And I was fortunate enough to meet her uh, when we met, she offered to train me and I could also work at the school that she was working called Middlebridge School, students, uh, a boarding school for students with learning differences while training under her. And that's where I got my golden ticket. That's where I learned how to teach explicitly, systematically, cumulatively, how to use assessments to understand what's going on in my kiddo's brain. Uh, how to then target instruction to their needs according to that data. Um, and I learned the structure of the English language, which was not something that I had learned. I learned about phonology, orthography, morphology. And by learning that, I was then able to break it down and teach it to my students. Right. And these are something? kiddos that are coming to me at 15, 16 years old, sometimes at a pre-reading level. Let me ask you something, because I, I haven't thought about this before, but now that you're saying it, it, it really rings true for my experience as well, because the reason like, I got the instruction on learning to read was not where I went to university, but instead I met a teacher who knew what they were doing and taught me, right? Um, so I have a similar story, and I'm just curious, what do you think happened that all of our schools of education, all of our teachers' colleges, all of our public schools went one direction but the specialized schools, they knew, you know, like the schools for children with dyslexia, like they, they understood that they weren't going that way. How do, how, do you have any idea how that happened? Well, they say that the kiddos with dyslexia are the canaries in the coal mine, right? Really? I'm sorry, I'm not going to attribute that to the right person. Um, but that's a, that's a, a quote that, um, you know, is, is pretty commonly used because uh, a, a lot of kids need that explicit systematic instruction, but the kiddos with dyslexia need that explicit systematic instruction with multiple practice opportunities and opportunities for feedback. So they're the first ones to kind of let you know that it's not going right. And why have schools of ed kind of made the shift? I mean, that there's a lot that goes into it, but, you know, it's politics. Um, I know my, my friend Susan Brady has been called a right-wing phonicator before, <laughs> um, which, you know, couldn't be further from the truth. Um, there are just teaching philosophies um, that come into play, charismatic leaders, you know, that's kind of where you get into the, the soul to story territory. You mentioned balanced literacy twice now, back when you were USC and then just now. And something I've heard 
is some of our favorite balanced literacy people might be back with phonics in their programs now. How do you, how do you feel about that? I think, you know, we have to be really careful about phonics patches um, where the program is truly rooted on research that comes from whole language. Uh, We have to be really careful about, you know, Steph Stoller gave a a presentation last year. that says you can't put lipstick on a pig. (laughs) I'm not saying that all of the curricular companies are pigs. I want to be careful, but that's the first thing that came to mind. Um, So just be careful to ensure that all of the components of your curriculum are truly aligned to the scientific evidence. Use the curriculum evaluation guidelines. They will share the red flags just because you are adding a component doesn't necessarily that you're, mean that you're adding it and all of the other instruction that goes along with it. It's not just phonics. It's not just about learning letter sounds for, you know, that A says ah for one week. It's about reciprocal review. It's about learning to decode the words, but also encode the words to create that reciprocal relationship to help map the word. Um, You know, it's about the whole program being set up for kiddos to understand that letters correspond with sounds and you can decode the words. But also you can't do that at the expense of building knowledge, building language, learning how, you know, learning handwriting, learning writing. Um, So you have to ensure that, you know, your curriculum and your curricular materials really do have a comprehensive approach that is founded in research. Um, I really love the term phonics patch. I'm going to, I might steal that one. I think that this idea of people kind of like throwing phonics in and calling it, I think to your point, right, those quotes that you just read from your, your experience at USC might still be living in these programs. And then there's a phonics patch. I don't, I don't know. I haven't seen them yet, but I think it's really important to, to point that out, that if they aren't making huge shifts and really looking at evidence um, that it's passed. Yeah. And my question, I think, to these curriculum companies is, well, if you are acknowledging that what was in your prior materials may not have been as founded in scientific research, and if you see the need to develop your phonics or your foundational skill, I prefer foundational skill because then that incorporates decoding, encoding, phoneme awareness, hopefully morphology as well. Um, But if you are making your foundational skills more robust and removing practices that you are now saying are not aligned to the scientific evidence, are you offering that for free? Or giving back money for the things that you gave it, that you sold earlier? That's that's a really good question. And I I don't think one they're going to be interested in answering, but I like it. (laughs) All right, back to you. So you were teaching in Rhode Island. Yeah. Yes. It was actually in a castle on the ocean, uh, Middlebridge School. It was not bad. Um, Once again, learned so much from my students there um, and just became so empowered knowing that I could take them um, from early readers to readers um, and show them academic success for the first time in their life. Uh, It was so exciting for them. It was so relieving for them and their families. And I wanted other educators to have that opportunity. Um, I worked one-on-one with these kiddos, so I only had six kids per year, and I knew that I wasn't helping enough students at that point. And so I did some advocacy work along with some really incredible folks here in Rhode Island, and we helped to pass some legislation called the Right to Read Act. Um, It's borrowed from Arkansas. It requires uh, proficiency in the science of reading and structured literacy for all elementary educators and special educators, awareness for all other educators. 
Um, and when that passed, I noticed there's a small amount of funding. And one of the one of the uh, things that the funding was used for was to hire a full time employee. So I did another gulp and like, well, my beautiful summers in Rhode Island with my children and working with these students in this castle on the ocean that I love this job. I feel like that's about to change. So, <laughs> but I did want to make sure that the legislation was implemented in a robust way. Um, I wanted to support students in Rhode Island however I could. So I applied for the job and I did end up working for the Rhode Island Department of Education, largely to support the implementation of the Right to Read Act for several years. So I worked on a structured literacy website, helped to create the awareness uh, courses, um, helped to build some tools for higher ed, um, lots of really great projects. I did not feel like my work was done there. However, I was fortunate to be able to do most of my work from home. This was during COVID. And then they brought everybody back to the office. My kiddos were pretty little at the time. I think they were, you know, two, five and eight probably. And so um, Providence is a good hour away. So I wasn't seeing my kiddos till 5 p.m. Meanwhile, I was supporting this little organization, big organization called the Reading League with a couple of their projects, the Defining Guide, the original curriculum evaluation guidelines. Um, and so Maria Murray let me know that there was a job coming up called the National Science of Reading Project Director. And by the way, it's full-time remote. And it would give me the opportunity of doing a lot of the work that I was doing to support Rhode Island, but more on a national level. And it was just too great of an opportunity to not take up. So uh, a year ago, March, I started at the Reading League and, you know, it's it's like a playground. You know, I'm able to, to really work with a lot of the folks that I um, respect um, and can, you know, draw on that casting experience of bringing everybody together, of creating these ensembles and teams of folks that can support one another, learn from one another um, as we all try to support positive literacy outcomes nationwide. What I love about your story is every step along the way, you're like, and I loved it, right? I loved being a casting director. <laughs> I loved going to USC despite that I didn't learn to teach reading. And I love being at this castle in Rhode Island. Um, but it also like shows the, like, the way you climbed up your impact, right? And I feel like what I hear most from teachers who want to like work at Amira or work in ed tech is they want to have a larger impact. For you, did you feel like moving into policy created that opportunity for you? Was Did it feel like more impact or was it about the same as being in the classroom? Surely, I, I feel like there's been probably more impact as I hear from schools and districts that have used the Reading League resources that I have helped to work on um, or, you know, talking to state agencies um, and sharing some of the journey that my colleagues and I had at the Rhode Island Department of Education, uh, I know that that will have ripple effects. Um, just meeting, just bringing the faculty from educator preparation programs together. I don't think I do a lot of the work. I think they really support one another, but being able to provide that platform where they can learn and grow from one another and just the overwhelming understanding of the ripple effect of the work that they are going to be doing and preparing our future educators that definitely um, feels like it's it's a, it's going to hopefully have a, a great impact. I mean, these folks are committed and and ready to to do the work and help one another to make sure that our schools of education are really making these shifts. So, when you think about all of the work that you've done, if a teacher came to you and said, "I just care so much about science of reading. I care so much about every child being able to read. I, I need to have more impact. Like I need to do go beyond my classroom." 
what would you tell them to do next? Keep building knowledge, um, bring people together, um, consider uh, uh, maybe coaching. Um, I think coaching is a huge missing component in a lot of the structures. And so if they have the knowledge, apply the knowledge, share the knowledge with others, um, help guide others through the journey. Um, we need more thoughtful school leaders and administrators. Uh, we have many that are doing incredible work. Um, we don't necessarily want to take great teachers out of the classroom, but perhaps their part of your future journey is to become a school leader or administrator. Um, you know, think about school committee, think about um, being on a school board. Um, uh, what impact can you have? Think about making partnerships with your ed prep programs nearby, uh, providing feedback to your ed prep program if they did not prepare you adequately. Um, there's a lot of partnerships that you as one person uh, can can develop and create that can make a big impact, right? I tell my kids all the time, it's not about what you want to do in the future, it's what problem you want to solve. And so if the literacy crisis is the problem that you want to work on, there are a lot of ways that you can help to solve that problem. That's great. And I think one of the things that you're dialing in on that we keep hearing from entrepreneurs and educators is you have to talk to other people, right? Like go get in a conversation with other people. There are other people working on this problem um, that are as passionate as you are, and they might have some sort of direction, conversation, something for you to join, but definitely being in the room is really helpful and, and listening and learning with others. So I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, all right. Yeah. So we're going to go scary. to, yeah. Oh, it's, it's really, it's, I think, you know, when you get, there's a reason it's called the reading wars, it can be terrifying, but if you, if this is what's knocking yeah. on your heart, it's important to be there and, and listening and trying to bring people together. So I appreciate that. That's right. Don't be afraid. Don't, you know, I think, I think that what holds a lot of people back is like, I don't know enough. I don't know enough to speak my mind. I don't know enough to talk about this. I feel the same way, but you have to kind of tamper down that inner voice. And um, you probably know more than a lot of folks and, you know, be um, brave and have those conversations. That makes sense. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question before we go into our rapid fire five questions um, about science of reading, because I heard someone say this and it's someone who said it to me in confidence, but a researcher that we all respect said, I'm really scared that in five years, we will have put all of this time and energy in science of reading and didn't get to see the results we wanted because of all the directions we went and because of some of the infighting and things like that. How do you, how do you feel about that? It's, I think it's a very valid concern, um, especially when you think about our schools and the teacher shortage in many states and administrator turnover. Um, it's really, really challenging. Uh, I know Elsa Cardenas-Hagen talks about her, the districts that she's supported for many years and think it's so admirable. Um, she said before that when a new administrator comes in, they say, hi, welcome. This is what we do here. It's been successful and we're going to continue to do it. Um, I, I, I think having that commitment um, and having um, all staff involved in it and even maybe even further into the community um, will help to make a more sustainable effort that's not going to just be lost when the next administrator comes in with no training and new ideas. That's really well put. And I think, I think what, what speaks to me from that sentence is it's been successful, 
not just it's been like, I'm sure it could be, we have the data to show it's been successful, right? Like we have the evidence and we know what we're talking about, I think is, is really powerful. And I think that's great. Um, all right. Five questions. I promise the first one is usually the hardest for people. Um, so our podcast is called More Than a Test. And the reason we call it More Than a Test at Amira is because we believe we're the third generation of assessment where instead of learning where kids are um, as readers three times a year on a benchmark assessment, Amira allows kids to be assessed every single day, every single time they read. And so it, it's more than a test for assessment. Let's, let's know every day what they know. Um, but everyone else thinks it means all kinds of other things about kids and teachers and everything. So I'm curious, when you heard More Than a Test, what did you think it meant? Um, well, when I hear you describe it now, um, it just makes me think of my my experience at Middlebridge. Um, without assessment data, I wouldn't have been able to do the things that I did with my students and to help them see for the first time, you know, how successful they were because assessments help you see what's going on with those neural connections that, um, you know, need to be made in order to create a proficient reading circuit. So um, it is absolutely more than a test. Assessments are essential and there is an essential component of the science of reading. Awesome. Um, can you think of one piece of technology that you are really excited about? Oh my gosh. My son is a, a coder. He's 10 years old and he's already teaching coding classes. So um, he gets me excited about like wearable technology uh, and some opportunities that wearable tech like smartwatches can help kiddos with ADHD. He was just involved in a, a study um, at URI. Uh, so I think it's scary, but also exciting all of the wearable technology that we could have that can help us uh, in our future healthcare needs. Awesome. That's really great. I love that your kids are just like intertwined in everything you do. Um, all right. Think of a, liter <laughs> we call it a literary moment, but a moment that involved a book in your life that is like really meaningful to you that resonates with you. Just a moment with a book. Well, I just finished reading The Secret Garden with my kids and it's such a beautiful book. And my kids are now five eight and 10. And they were all just, I, I couldn't believe it. They were just all so into the story. And we got to the end and there's just this quote that I love that I want to carry forward with me. And it was, where you tend a rose, my lad, a thistle cannot grow. And so we change it to my love. And we say that all the time, where you tend a rose, my love, a thistle cannot grow. So in an effort to try to spread positivity and, you know, focus on those, those moments of happiness. I, I would like to carry that with me for a long time. That is really lovely. All right. The best advice you've ever received? Probably just to believe in yourself. You know more than you think you know. Because <laughs> uh, otherwise, you know, you, you, you would shy away from everything. So just believe That's in really yourself. good advice. And a book you think everyone should read. And I, I think you told me you have two. Well, I was going to name The Secret Garden, um, but we'll go with nonfiction because I am such a word nerd. Um, I love all those books that just tell us the history of words and where they came from and spelling. So I would say one of my favorites was called The Roots of Phonics. Uh, and then there was one that I was recently introduced to as well. Um, I guess I will do too, after all, called Beneath the Surface of Words. Um, and just understanding the role of morphology and how our language came to be. It's really cool. And I think it's really useful as a teacher uh, because it helps us unlock the spelling and the meaning of a lot of words. Um, I think there's a lot of future work in integrating morphology um, 
very strongly in our um, instructional materials for our English learners and for our native English speakers to to help them um, succeed. I haven't read Beneath the Surface of Words, so I'm so glad you went for two. I'm going to add that to my list. Thank you so much for being here today. (laughs) This has been a great conversation. I know you're really busy with all of your projects, but it's really exciting to get to ask some of our questions about science of reading. And as I said before, our team was so excited to hear your story personally. Thank you, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.